justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta welcome to justify we live in a time when podcasts are essentially talk shows interesting but largely unidimensional in format at the vidhi center which is born out of the spirit of innovation and disruption we wondered whether we can do podcasts fundamentally differently over 6 months of brainstorming and we have justify our objective with justify is simple to be the go to place in the podcast universe for major legal news and analysis in india our target audience is young law students and lawyers i hope many of you are tuning in today the media and lay persons who all need accurate knowledge of legal developments after all the matters in our courts are too important to be left to judges and senior lawyers alone every episode of justify will have four segments round up where with the help of aditya prasanna bhattacharya and pranay modi i give you a quick recap of the latest developments from the world of the courts deep dive where i take a single topic for deeper discussion we'll keep the topics contemporary because that's where the interest lies but in special episodes we'll pick up historical topics the supreme court on land reform in the 1950s golaknath and chief justice subarao residing to run for president and sometimes we'll also come to you live from location from law schools in the country my third segment is tete a tete the segment i love the most where i discuss my argument with a special guest or guests they will range from law students to supreme court judges so if you want to be on the show i'm guessing you're in the former category and not the latter do write in to me finally we have clatter that's the legal quiz that's slightly tougher than clat amazon gift vouchers going to buy my recently published book on independence and accountability of the indian higher judiciary or anything else you might fancy that's my show and i hope you enjoy listening to it every week today's episode is on ayodhya the temple of complete justice we'll be joined in a bit by aparna chandra assistant professor of law of national law university delhi but before that our round up of last week's big legal developments Today's roundup is busier than usual on account of Chief Justice Gogoi's last week in office. Five key judgments were handed down: Ayodhya, the review in the Rafal case, the review in the Sabri Mala case, the RTI Act at the Office of the Chief Justice of India, and the future of tribunals in India. The first three feature in our roundup, and the next two will go into next week's show. But that's not all. News from the courts in India cannot remain limited to the Supreme Court alone. that risks overlooking the important work done by the high courts in the country which need constant engagement we'll round up a key judgment on the rights of a divorced woman under the domestic violence act handed down by the aurangabad bench of the bombay high court because the nuts and bolts of the law that affects the common man and woman is much less the seminal judgment of the supreme court and much more 
the judgments of the high courts. Turning to Ayodhya, the issue before the court in Ayodhya was who owned the 2.77 acres of disputed property where the Babri Masjid had once stood. Additionally, what would happen to the 67 acres of adjoining property which the central government had acquired under the acquisition of certain areas at Ayodhya Act 1993? It was held by the court in a unanimous judgment that both Hindus and Muslims had joint possessory title over the disputed property. The Hindus, represented by the Ram Janmabhumi Nyas, on evidence had better title because they showed open, exclusive and unimpeded possession of the outer courtyard. In the inner courtyard, there was a mosque side by side with Hindus asserting their rights to pray there. Owing to the property being composite, the court used its powers to do complete justice and handed over the title of the disputed property to the Hindus. It ordered five acres to be given to the Sunni Waqf board on behalf of the Muslim parties for a mosque to be built at Ayodhya. The action now shifts to the formulation of a scheme by the central government, including the creation of a trust which would implement the order of the court, as well as decide what to do with the remaining 67 acres. Will the trust be an organization solely dedicated to the establishment of a Ram temple? Or will it be a trust to foster national unity? In Sabarimala, continuing with the theme of the Supreme Court and temples in India, the court reopened, rather surprisingly if I may add, an old can of worms with its review of its own judgment in the Sabarimala case given last year. Last year, the court had held that menstruating women between 10 and 50 could not be denied their right of praying to Lord Ayappa at the Sabriwala temple. This had severe constitutional concerns led to law and order difficulties and ultimately culminated in a review petition in the Supreme Court. Court held in this case by a majority penned by Chief Justice Gogoi that it would neither admit the review nor dismiss it. Instead, it said that it may not be inappropriate if this matter is heard by a larger bench. It clubbed similar matters relating to women's entry into mosques, the constitutionality of the practice of female genital mutilation in the Daudi Bohra community, and the right of a Parsi woman who has married a non-Parsi to enter a fire temple and a tower of silence. It said there is a need for a consistent judicial policy in this regard. The dissent by Justices Nariman and Chandrachur was powerful. They held that the basic requirements of a successful review, that there is an error apparent on the face of the record or new information has emerged subsequent to the judgment, has not been met. In my view, Justice Nariman is right. I have written about why there are several errors of interpretation in this case. But every possible holding which one person may think is an error, another may think is correct. If the review jurisdiction is used for these cases, then review of a judgment will be like an intra-court appeal within the Supreme Court. This is anathema in our constitution. Turning to another review case that the court decided on last week, the Rafal case. The court dismissed the review petition in the Rafal case more straightforwardly 
You remember that the case was about the purchase of Rafale aircraft by the Modi government and alleged irregularities therein, which was one of the key issues in the 2019 general elections. The court, however, had then draw, refused to be drawn into the political ticket. The court, even in this case, refused to get into this matter. It said that there may have been some errors, but those errors were not material. Justice Joseph, who gave a concurring opinion, also dismissing the review, gave something which was more interesting. He said that the result may have been different if the petitioners had asked for a preliminary inquiry rather than a full-blown investigation. That a bit difficult to understand? You're not the only one. We'll do a full show on this in a couple of weeks' time. Accepting an error and not reviewing it is one of the well-established curiosities that frustrate non-lawyers. But hey, that's why lawyers are a universally disliked fraternity. Our High Court case for the week is Atmaram vs. Sangeeta, decided by the Aurangabad bench of the Bombay High Court. The question was simple. Does a divorced woman have any rights under the Domestic Violence Act? The question ought to have been properly framed as follows. The Domestic Violence Act requires parties to be in a domestic relationship. This is defined as two persons living together in a shared household, whether through marriage or a relationship in the nature of marriage. Is a divorced woman who continues to live in the same household in a relationship with her husband, which is a domestic relationship? The court said yes. The couple, despite divorce, which itself was sought by the husband on dubious grounds, lived together as husband and wife. Thus, a purposive interpretation of the protective legislation should extend to a divorced woman. The Supreme Court may lay down seminal law rightly or wrongly, but the lives of millions of men and women are shaped by reliefs that the high courts give every day, like it did in Sangeeta's case. That's why we'll make sure that we keep our eye on the ball in the high courts of the country, keeping you up to date with the real everyday business of the legal fraternity. Our deep dive today is on the temple of complete justice. How to deal with the spiritual in a temporal world is one of the Ramayan's abiding quandaries. It's not simply a tale of otherworldly gods. It's about men and women striving to be better versions of themselves in an all-too-human setting of palace intrigue, succession wars, ambition and desire. Ram shows the way for both citizens and the state to be good and just. Equally, his struggles are evident. Goodness and justice are not formulaic fruits of ritual cleanliness. They are hard-won and often imperfect. The judgment of the Supreme Court in the Ayodhya title suits is a modern-day constitutional microcosm of the Ramayana. Why do I say that? It attempts to resolve a clash between the spiritual beliefs of Hindus regarding Ram's birthplace with the temporal reality of a mosque. Much like the Ramayana, writing it is difficult. The spiritual and temporal are colliding worlds. Writing about them risks employing lofty homilies or banalities. It is my view that for the most part, the judgment gets it right and shows a way forward. Let me explain why. 
Rarely since the scholar B.K. Mukherjee was Chief Justice of India in the early 1950s has a judgment of such erudition been rendered on Hindu law. Rejecting the argument that the birthplace of Ram itself is a juristic person, the court upholds an important principle. Juristic personality is attributed to Hindu deities to protect the pious purpose that lies behind the vesting of properties in the deity. It cannot simply protect a belief that Ram was born in a particular place. If this argument were accepted, it would have meant that beliefs of persons firmly in the realm of the spiritual would by themselves trump the realities of physical ownership of property. This would replace the rule of law with the rule of the believer, undoing much of the constitutional edifice that has been painstakingly built since 1950. This, the court says, is against the concept of secularism, which is part of the basic structure of the constitution. Many have, however, said that the order of the court has privileged belief over evidence and is secular, but on Hindu terms. Not only does such criticism overlook vast portions of the judgment, but it also does not adequately consider the meaning of the term evidence. In a century-long dispute, evidence cannot mean title deeds and property papers. It's bound to be based on an assessment of accounts of the use of the property. The court finds on a balance of probabilities that Hindu worship continued unimpeded in the outer courtyard of the disputed property. In the inner courtyard, there was both a mosque as well as prayers offered by Hindus at least up to 1857. On this basis, it accepts the arguments of both Hindu and Muslim parties to some possession. One can disagree with how some pieces of evidence have been appreciated, but one cannot fault the court for not deciding on the basis of evidence. This charge might seem more legitimate when leveled against the court's grant of the entire disputed structure to Hindu parties. Almost as a recompense, it orders five acres, nearly double the size of the disputed property, to Muslim parties to build a mosque in Ayodhya. There are two questions here, the power of the court to mold such relief and the validity of the relief that it molds. Under 142 of the Constitution, the Supreme Court has the power to pass any order necessary to do complete justice. Though several previous uses of this power, framing adoption guidelines, regularizing admission to MBBS courses, granting divorce, I've argued elsewhere has been arbitrary. This is not so in the current case. In fact, it's precisely for a hard legal case like Ayodhya that this power was vested in the Supreme Court in the first place. The court was right to use it. However, the manner in which the court has used this power could understandably disillusion Muslims about their place in modern India. But we need to take steps to prevent the hardening of this disillusionment into apathy. First, the disputed property has been given to a yet-to-be-established trust. This is an invitation to the government and its trustees to be statesmen and stateswomen providing land for the mosque proximate to any proposed temple that might be built. Can we imagine a temple alongside a mosque located within a complex of national unity dedicated to Sant Kabir? Can the trust also comprise persons who are non-Hindus, demonstrating the inclusiveness of the Hindu faith of Sarvadharma Sambhav? The future of the task of the nation being built will depend on the care and respect with which the task of mosque building 
is carried out alongside temple building. Second, the court has categorically held that the desecration of the mosque in 1949 and again in 1992 is an egregious violation of the rule of law. Those responsible must be punished and cannot take advantage of their own wrong. The court's declaration of secularism will ring hollow when the destroyers of the mosque roam freely. Despite these possibilities, there will always remain two views about the relief the court shaped. It's commonsensical and wise, but will always carry the charge of being majoritarian. It's like the youth Khan of the Ramayan, where Ram asks Sita to leave him on account of having been in Ravan's lap. Like the myths that gave rise to it, the judgment may have myths that are complex and polarizing. Complete justice, after all, is always a work in progress. To discuss a range of issues that the Ayodhya judgment throws up, I have with me Dr. Aparna Chandra, Assistant Professor of Law at the National Law University, Delhi, for a tete-a-tete. -tete. Welcome, Aparna. My pleasure. So, Aparna, there's a lot in this judgment that we need to get through. But let's start with the big concept, secularism. In your view, does the court walk the talk on secularism? Mostly no. A little bit partially yes. Let me explain the yes first and then I'll get to the no. Yes, because I think the judgment is fairly nuanced in thinking about the implications for a secular polity in how it develops its jurisprudence on specific parts of the issue. So, for example, both parties, the Sunni Waqf board on the one side and those making the claims on behalf of the uh, Hindus on the other side, make claims to the property on the basis that this is a religious site and that the religious nature of that site, that it's a Waqf property on the one hand or that it's a Hindu deity and therefore uh, a juristic person on the other hand, that this religious nature of the property confers some kind of special quality to that property and confers title exclusion, you know, the ability to exclude others on from that property. And in determining that question, I think the court does a very fine balancing of looking at what are the implications of saying that, yes, this property is a juristic person or that this property is a waqf property what would that do for claims on property law, claims about immovable property in the future? So, for example, mm. that's that's a good place where they bring in the idea that we are a secular polity and that the courts have to make secular determinations and they walk that talk. So, just to um, interrupt you there, so what does secularism mean when mm. we are adjudicating a an essentially religious claim because I would say if I were to argue yeah. on the other side that this is a property dispute yeah. and people have led different kinds of evidence yeah. in order to say that they are the owners of this property. Yeah. Now what, does secularism even have to play a role here? It does because as you know law is subject to interpretation right so there's nothing that's says that, and in, particularly in a complex area like this, where they are competing claims, both sides are laying claim to the same property based on 
legal principles, legal precedents, etc. So how do you adjudicate those competing claims? There is an interpretation to be made. It's sure. not some objective application of law to facts. But I'll actually pick up on this idea of something that is essentially religious. That's the other place where I think the court walks the talk a little bit on secularism. To, to explain that point, let me actually go to another, the other big religion judgment that came out uh, this week, which is the Sabrimala Review. And if you, as you know, what the court has done there is that it has sent for adjudication by a larger bench the issue of how do you determine what is a practice that is protected by the freedom of religion, right? right? Essentially religious practice. This is the essentially religious practice test. And what the courts have tended to do uh, in one line of cases, including in Ismail Faruqi, which is the 1993 judgment in the Ayodhya case that, that this court was bound by, um, what the court has tended to do is to say, well, the only thing that is protected under um, Article 2526 is the an essential aspect of a particular religion. Now, what is an essential aspect of the of that particular religion? I will tell you. I, the court, will tell you. So, what that ends up doing is, is the court has to sit as a in judgment. in judgment over religion. Now, as opposed to that. What the court has done here and what the court has done in the Sabrimala uh, review, whether it falls within the purview of review is a different matter. But what the court has done is it has said, we cannot go into theological questions of what is essentially religious, what is not, whether the faith is rational or what is not. What it can do is look at whether the faith is genuinely held. Mm. right? And that becomes a matter of evidence. That is an evidence that can be adduced to say, is this a genuinely sincerely held belief or is it something that's a strategy, you know, for litigation purposes? That I think marks a big shift in the role that the court sees for itself in terms of entanglement of the state and the court as representative of the state and religion. So is that where you think the court does not walk the talk? No, I'm saying it walks the talk here. The problem is that when it comes to actually adjudicating these questions, it places very, it says that the idea of secularism is that we have to treat all religions equally. And they repeat it uh, in several places, but they don't walk the talk on that. So the classic example is they place very unequal evidentiary burdens on both parties. If I may sure, explain sure. that. So take everything aside. At the heart of this dispute are two suits. The others are peripheral. The one suit is filed by the Sunni Waqf Board. And it says, this is, we have the title to this property and give us possession of it. Uh, that's suit number four. Suit number five is filed on behalf of Ramlala Virajman as one deity and Ram Janstan, the the site itself as another deity by their next friend. I don't want to get into details of um, Hindu law on endowments here, but basically on behalf of Ram Lalla Virajman, the claim is that this property belongs to Ram Lalla Virajman. Uh, therefore, hand over this property to Ram Lalla uh, Virajman and, and because this suit was filed before 1992, allow us to demolish the structure that is there and build a round temple. Mm. This is 
at the heart this these are the disputing claims two parties are saying this belongs to us we have title and we should have control of it we should have possession of it that's what the court has to decide the court determines that title it's not very clear there's you know uh, how the the historical progression on title there's no documentary evidence to show that yes there was you know an actual clear progression what the court does have in evidence is who was occupying which part of uh, of the land of the disputed uh, site and who was worshiping where yes so what the court has at best is some evidence of worship and some evidence of possession now what the evidence law says is that if i am in possession of a particular property and i can prove it then the burden is on someone who is saying i am not the owner of that property to show that i am not the owner sure. right so that's the moment i can say that i have possession possession raises a presumption of title so in this case the mm. burden would be more on the hindus given the fact that there is a mosque that's existing there is that i would say i would say at the very least mm -hmm. in both these suits mm -hmm. in suit 4 so there is there is a claim to title there is a claim to possession on both sides both sides have to either prove that they have possession in which case the burden shifts to the other side to say but they were not the owners or both sides have to prove that they have but title. here is something that i haven't understood hmm. sorry hmm. to interrupt hmm. you hmm. the fact is that there was a mosque hmm. and we know that there was a hmm. mosque hmm. okay hmm. and there is the physical fact hmm. of a mosque hmm. coupled with hmm. the fact that where that mosque stood hmm. is also the site where hindus may believe hmm. that lord ram was hmm. born hmm. so when you have a case where in your own hmm. words the in terms of evidence where there is hmm. the physical presence hmm. of a mosque hmm. vis-a-vis the possible existence of mm. worship mm. at that site mm. then isn't the burden mm. greater on the hindu parties mm. to show that there has been or there ought to be mm. some basis mm. by which the title should belong to them exactly and what does the court do the court makes two crucial mistakes here i would say one is it equates worship with possession right here is a mosque the mosque is there hmm. right the mosque is there from some period indeterminate after the mid 1500s but sometime before the mid 1700s right from the 1700s there is record to show that both that there was a mosque there and that there was some worship by hindus at the same uh, site and this is what the court records so there is a mosque there and there is evidence that hindus are still worshiping there what does the court do the court says see you have a mosque you have a mosque for maybe around 300 years but you haven't shown us evidence of worship that's right of offering namaz and before for, 1857 before 1857 and so therefore we cannot conclude that you were in possession mm. but that seems to equate worship with possession mm. right now think about it logically what look look at the standard that that the party has to meet the standard that the party has to meet is preponderance of probabilities it should be more probable than not that their case existed you have a mosque that mosque has existed for around 300 years it's been maintained right it's not uh, derelict fallen it's apart. not fallen apart for 300 years which means it's being maintained 
At least at the annexation of Oth, the government records show that the government grants, gives some grant for the maintenance of the mosque and says that this is a continuation of a grant from the uh, past. Preponderance of probabilities just on that is to say there is a mosque, it is called a mosque uh, by, by the very authorities that the court says can be relied on this purpose on the other side. Uh, it has been maintained as a mosque that it is a mosque and it is, you know, there is possession. Looks like a mosque, feels, feels like, like a, a mosque, mosque, is a mosque. Is a mosque. What the court has said on the other hand is that what they are looking for is worship, right? And there's no rec evidentiary record to say a namaz was being offered. There is evidence to show that Hindus were worshipping there from travelogues and etc. And so they say that therefore, and at some point this gets confused because then they start taking this evidence of worship as evidence of possession. So for the inner courtyard, for example, right, the, the actual dispute, disputed part, the evidence is that Hindu parties were standing outside a railing, looking in and worshipping. And the court says that that means that Muslim parties did not have exclusive possession of the inside even though the court's own records show that from 18 the mid 18 uh, uh, 50s 1857-58 every time that Hindus have tried to come inside to worship they've been pushed out mm. right so they've been constant uh, there, there are records that the court accepts uh, for that so where the court goes wrong is one it does this equation of worship with possession but the second thing is the entire burden is placed on the Muslim parties to show that they were in possession through worship of the inner courtyard. They don't put the same evidentiary burden on the Hindus to show actual possession, that they were actually inside, that they were not just standing outside looking in, that they were they had possession, right? So that is where I'm saying. That so logically, then there's a there's a difficulty mm. because the Hindu side would say, mm. and if I were to argue on their behalf, mm. that they've always maintained mm. that the birthplace was where the inner courtyard is, and mm. that's where they have always directed their worship. Mm. That worship appeared to have happened for an unbroken period of time, mm. but 1857 onwards, when the colonial authorities decided to build a grill brick mm. wall. They could no longer go inside, so they couldn't possess the property from 1857 onwards and thus had to stay outside, though it was quite clear that what they were essentially interested in is that inner courtyard. That's fine. If I were to argue on the other side, I would say that the moment you give up your claim on possession and you say that, yes, you were not in possession, that you were only worshipping, my claim becomes stronger because now I have an evidentiary presumption which says that if I have possession, then you prove that I'm not the owner. That's right. So this actually leads to a larger question, hmm. which is how far back in time should we go? Hmm. Obviously, there were all kinds of questions that were hmm. raised as to whether the mosque was built on the site of a temple hmm. or not, which the court has partly answered and partly deflected mm. as it's rightly not gone into mm. that issue in any great detail because whether there was a temple mm. there at in some antiquity mm. doesn't really have mm. a bearing on the question of who possesses it now. But what strikes me as interesting is two things. One, 
they make a reference to the places of worship act mm. and the places of worship act very interesting legislation mm. that i hadn't heard of till this uh, till the ayodhya case likewise uh, uh, says that the relevant date for determining what a struct or a place of worship should be is 1947 so if something's a temple in 1947 it should remain a temple if something is a mosque it should remain a mosque interestingly however they carve out an exception for ram janmabhoomi because of the fact that it's already under dispute so one date that we have which the court actually places a lot of reliance on in the course of its judgment is the watershed moment of india's constitutional history that's 15th august 1947 and 26th january 1950 if we are to look at it on that date then it's a mosque mm. and there's worship at the mosque mm. there's possession in that mosque mm. it's a mosque it's a disputed property but it's a mosque mm. on the other hand if you keep going back in time and we can't really draw an arbitrary mm. cut off in 1528 when the mosque was built the fact is that if you go back in time and as the court does if you go back to the sugga period mm. there is evidence of some kind of temple mm-hmm. that existed on the site now it could be a different kind of mm. temple to what is being claimed but there was certainly mm. on the preponderance of probabilities there was a temple mm. should we have stopped in 1947 or should we go back in time because if we go back in time then it is a temple but if we stick to 1947 then it's a mosque okay so a few thoughts on that one is the the places of worship act is very interesting and it's very interesting how the court also deals with it right it takes it as symbolic of this larger idea of secularism of letting the past go of building a new future a new secular india except that act carves out an exception for the babri masjid uh, ram janmabhoomi dispute is disputed site and i would wonder is that exception itself justified that's right. right the first thing that struck me was is this an article 14 violation is this not an article 14 violation why would you treat this disputed site differently from everything else because there are other disputes that are happening they are they might not be as salient yet but they're there they're simmering i mean taj mahal might be the next flash point for all you know it's not even and the fact of salience is not a legally relevant yeah, right. exactly mm. so which is where where is the article 14 contestation around babri masjid so that's, that's one question point. that's one question the second is i think the court does deal with this issue and i thought in with some sophistication where it says you know when regime changes happen regime changes uh, you know how do you adjudicate liabilities that flow from one regime to another regime it says that's a that's a difficult question typically only those liabilities that the new regime takes on are the liabilities that get uh, that, that that can then you know be held against that particular regime but there is continuity there is continuity between the present constitutional moment and the colonial state right through the device of article 372 of the constitution which says that unless expressly repealed or unless struck down and incompatible with the constitution the laws uh, and also the the liabilities that's another provision of the constitution will continue so the i would think that the annexation of oath is your cut off point mm. right what happened before the annexation of oath is a different legal regime 
Mm. Now, if you go there, Babur, if this was actually, and we don't know this, that, that, that this was under a grant from Babur, this, this masjid was built, mosque was built under a grant from Babur, but if it were to be established, that it was built under a grant from Babur or Aurangzeb or whatever, whoever it might have been, was a sovereign. Mm. Was a sovereign had, that had no limits on that, their power, except those that they chose to recognize. So, I mean, this was a sovereign act. So I'm saying there's no way to determine those issues. So the one thing that we do know is that this court is authorized by this constitution. This constitution recognizes legal continuity only with the colonial state. The colonial state extends for the purposes of this area to its annexation in 1856. So anything that happens before 1856, any rights and liabilities that are created before 1856, I would think are not germane to the to the adjudication of the dispute at this present moment. So that's an interesting point and I think it provides an interesting segue to what has been the most contested hmm. part of the judgment which is the actual order. Hmm. Uh, obviously the actual order we all know hmm. the disputed property 2.77 acres is given over hmm. to the Hindu parties and uh, site which is nearly double the size that's five acres is given to the Muslim parties uh, for a mosque to be built somewhere in Ayodhya. Now in your view is this outcome a desirable one? Not at all and let me take it in two parts the narrow legal part and then the larger question of justice equity good conscience complete justice that the court frames it as. So what does the court do legally? The court says we are fully decreeing suit five. Suit five is filed on behalf of the deities. Look at what is the prayer? What is the relief that has been sought in suit five? The suit five says this property belongs to us. Give it to us. Allow us to demolish the mosque. Now, if the court is fully decreeing this, what is the court saying? If the court, if the mosque was still there, would the court have fully decreed uh, suit five? If it would have ordered the mosque to be demolished, if it had, if it would have fully decreed suit five and ordered the mosque to be demolished, it's legitimating everything that happened in 1992. But th that was not before the court. To be fair to the court, as in the mosque was not there. Now, whether rightly or wrongly is a different question. But and it decreed suit four as well. It partially decreed suit four, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you, I'll, no, but I'll, I'll I'll come to why the mosque not being there is becomes crucial to questions of complete justice that the court uh, looks at. But just to complete that thought, if the court would not have fully decreed suit five because there was a mosque, if say the mosque was still to be uh, there, then today what you're doing is you're giving legal effect to an illegal act. You're saying that. If the mosque were there, I would, might not have fully decreed it. Because the mosque is not there, I am fully decreeing it. I think, Aparna, you are reading a little bit into what the court has done. The fact is that the decree was for title hmm. for the disputed property. Now, they have granted joint possessory title hmm. to both Muslims and Hindus. The possessory title for Hindus is on the basis of the fact that the outer courtyard has remained in their adver uh, in their unbroken hmm. peaceful possession hmm. for uh, kingdom come. Hmm. Uh, and as far as the inner courtyard is concerned, as you rightly said, they have equated, perhaps wrongly, worship with possession and said that there is some hmm. evidence of possession hmm. of the inner courtyard. 
Now that's what they have decreed. And so the Hindus have some share. Mm. The Muslims have some share. Mm. Now let's divide this up in some way that's equitable. Isn't that what they have done? Well, so on the basis of what they've said, mm. they say that they fully decreed suit five. So which is where my argument is okay. coming from. That they have given legal effect now to the demolition. Spoken which like a true legal academic. Active. So that that is the problem with the way they framed it. But now come to the molding of the relief, right? right. The, the, the question that you were more directly asking me. The court says we are, as, we are deploying our power to do complete justice. And what is complete justice in this case? Something that brings finality and peace to the situation. They say, well, in a courtyard, both of you have possession, which as I've already explained, I think that's problematic. But you both have possession, but it's only 1500 square feet. If you give both of you possession, this dispute will continue till kingdom come. So therefore, we have to do something about this. And so, well, we'll give this over to the Hindus uh, and Muslims will give you a separate site, but we'll double the, the size of the uh, site is basically what they've uh, done. I have a few concerns with this. The first probably in the immediate circumstance, the most prosaic of concerns is about how the court goes about exercising this power to do complete uh, justice. Now I've written uh, separately on this, but what the court says, even in this case, is that this power to do complete justice is a plenary power. It's a power that has no restrictions. It can do pretty much what it wants. And I think that's very dangerous. That's very dangerous for any public authority to claim that they have plenary powers to do anything uh, uh, that they. So but a plenary uh, gap-filling function. I think that's how we can see it, right? As it, because as a, the precedents are clear, and though the Supreme Court has often not followed its own precedent, but it's clear that you can't exercise 142 in the face of a statute, in the face of some contrary law. It's a gap-filling function, and this case had a gap that required to be filled. Well, so there's actually case law to the effect that the court can countermand uh, statutory provisions because this is a constitutional power and therefore is at a higher level than statutory power, which is my broader concern with 142. Sure. That is an unchecked power. But the second, and I think that's that comes to the heart of this dispute, what are you doing here? You are saying, what are the Muslim parties asking? Muslim parties are saying, we have a right. We have an entitlement. Literally, we have a title. We have an entitlement here. And the court says, well, we're not really sure whether you do or you do not. But instead of a right, we'll give you something else. We'll give you something lesser. We'll give you a consolation prize. So we'll why give do you, you see a... it like that? As I think that this is a this is a dangerous narrative to peddle because the fact is it is a right and it's been given as a right. Now, the only thing is that we, and the court says, whether rightly or wrongly, that this is a composite property. Mm. And this composite property, if we want to maintain long-lasting peace, mm. we will need to give some part of this property to somebody. Mm. And we have to give the other party some property somewhere else so that we have com complete peace. Now, yes, it could have gone the other way and said that, yes, let's build yes. a mosque here and yeah. let's, let's build the temple somewhere yeah. else. Yes, it could have done that. But in terms of sending one party somewhere else, I think per se, it seems to be necessary in the facts of the case. If it wanted to send some party somewhere else, I would still ask the question, given that the court is recognizing 
that there have been these huge rule rule of law violations in 1949 in 1992 with the desecration of the uh, of the mosque then its demolition and the court saying that it needs to do a restitution why is this the restitution so look at how the judgment flows right the court comes to this point where it says well both of you seem to have had joint possession but we can't give you joint possession because it's a small property so let's give it to the hindus mm-hmm. now this is the disputed area so right? actually that's quite interesting because ashutosh varshney mm-hmm. writing recently mm-hmm. in the indian express says and something mm-hmm. that was of interest to me was that and i quote deploying the kind of legal reasoning that frustrates non specialists of law and it even has hand- specialists of law <laughs> yeah. it has handed over the site where the erstwhile mosque stood to the hindu community for building of a ram temple so do you think that the court has allowed the hindu parties to take advantage of their own wrong absolutely which is precisely the point i was making earlier and maybe might be better made now which is to say that what you're doing is you're legitimizing uh the demolition right if the mosque had stood there would you have made the same order but if i were to play devil's advocate or argue on behalf of the court in this case it would perhaps say that the the first the desecration in 1949 and then the demolition in 1992 has had no bearing on the title whatsoever Hmm. the title dispute has gone purely on the basis of evidence now these two are reprehensible acts hmm. we've condemned the acts hmm. and now that the court has said that this is an egregious violation of the rule of law hmm. surely that is something that might uh, color the trial and the way in which the trial pans out i mean one doesn't know whether that will happen but but the problem is this right the court is the relief is not flowing from what the court finds right the court there's a there's a there's a gap there's a leap i should say the court says we find that you're both in joint possession of this inner courtyard what do we do with this well let's give it to the hindu parties and muslims will give it to you somewhere else so if the court were to say that if if the court were to make the argument that or someone were to make the argument on behalf of the court that you know this is this is where the law takes you no this is not where the law is taking you and the court's recognizing this is not where the well, law is I taking you that... in which case yes. the court is making a choice outside the parameters of the law and then it should be judged according to not according to standards of the law but standards of what it claims to be doing which is peace and finality so now taking a cue huh. taking a cue from the technicality that yeah. you uh, took recourse to a little earlier yeah. if i were to give a technicality of my own yeah. the court has not decreed that a hindu temple be built the court has decreed that a scheme be formulated mm. by the central government mm. which includes the setting up of a trust mm. and that trust may de- will be carrying out the purposes of the parties mm. now what is to say here now the politics of this aside but technically speaking what is to say here that the trust may decide that we will build a temple on this site and we will build a mosque right next to the site the court will say that that's certainly something that is not prohibited by their judgment it mm. certainly follows from their judgment because it's not like they have said that build it 5 acres somewhere somewhere completely different where mm. it can't be seen in fact it is in my view and i've written about this an opportunity for the central government and the state government to become statesmen and stateswomen so that they can in a effort that promotes national unity 
build a mosque at a site that's proximate to the temple with the care and respect that it deserves. I would still argue that that's a matter of charity. That's no longer a matter of right. And when a party has gone to court seeking a right and an entitlement and you tell them, yes, maybe, but I'm not going to give you your right. I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you something less, right? At which moment you have to ask, do, are you getting equal justice? Which is, so is, is your complete justice also equal justice? Is your peace, are you, are you trading off peace? for justice that's a question that lingers in the mind and i don't think the the court has a good response to that and i will just i mean i just say that this idea of an unjust peace unjust peace is inherently unstable it will either tend towards violence or the lack of peace or it will end up tending towards more claims for justice i'm not sure and i'm sure the court can't uh, say that that it has brought a finality to the dispute so then why is the court even going down this line of trying to determine what might achieve finality uh, when what it should be doing is determining what is right? And then let the chips fall. If that is the case, if all that we have is an appeal to the good conscience of the state, then the court could have done that as well and mm -hmm. said, well, state, here is your responsibility. This just gets me to the to another point about this whole complete justice idea. The court says that it's giving this five acres as restitution. What is the meaning of restitution? Right? Restitution means putting you back in the situation that you were in um, when the harm to you, so that it was as if the injury to you did not occur. What has the court done here? The court has said, well, we'll give you double the land. As if the injury done here is only about land, right? About, mm. you know, and that every site, every property is the same as any other property. That is such a misreading of the idea of what might be claims of justice, at least the sense and perception of justice and injustice in this dispute, that one wonders where the moral compass of the court might be to, to say that this is actually justice. I think justice, equity, and good conscience will always be bitterly contested. Aparna has given us a very cogent argument as to why it's an unjust peace. Uh, I think it's a peace that is born out of a genuine intention uh, to bring uh, justice to all parties and bring this case to a closure. Neither of us is a soothsayer, so we don't know how it pans out, but we do hope that whichever way it pans out is a peaceful way. Uh, thank you very much, Aparna, for joining me today. Uh, and it's been a real pleasure having you. Likewise. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And don't leave us just yet. Today we have our quiz, Clatter, which is our legal quiz that's a little tougher than okay. Clat and hopefully will be very difficult to Google. Send all your responses by email to justify at vidilegalpolicy.in. That's J-U-S-T-I-F-Y at vidhilegalpolicy.in. An Amazon voucher of 1000 rupees awaits. Uh, the question, the following is an extract of a communication between two lawyers on 4th of May 1948, both of whom have been in the news about Kashmir recently. Identify the two lawyers. I understand Savarkar's name is being mentioned in connection with the assassination of Gandhiji. I do not know what evidence has been found against him. 
I have not the least doubt that you will satisfy yourself that nothing is done which may give rise to the suggestion that he was being prosecuted on account of his political convictions. You have always appreciated my own delicate position in this matter. I leave the matter to your decision. Who are the two lawyers who are writing to each other in this quote from 4th of May 1948? Write into Justify at Legal Policy. The first one to write in gets the prize. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Our next episode is titled Faith Not Law. It's on the Sabri Mala dispute, which Aparna referred to. And I'll be joined by a very special guest, Salman Khurshid, senior lawyer and former law minister. Look forward to seeing you next week. Adjourned. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. Follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast or any other podcast channel that you know to tune in to our next episode. Email us at justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode. We look forward to hearing from you.